This episode is brought to you by Vin Italy International Academy, the toughest Italian wine program. 1,000 candidates have produced 262 Italian wine ambassadors to date. Next courses in Hong Kong, Russia, New York, and Verona. Think you make the cut? Apply now at vinitalyinternational.com. Welcome to Wine, Food and Travel with me, Mark Millen, on Italian Wine Podcast. Listen in as we journey to some of Italy's most beautiful places in the company of those who know them best, the families who grow grapes and make fabulous wines. Through their stories, we will learn not just about their wines, but also about their ways of life, the local and regional foods and specialities that pair naturally with their wines, and the most beautiful places to visit. We have a wonderful journey of discovery ahead of us, and I hope you will join me. Welcome to Wine, Food and Travel with me, Mark Millen, on Italian Wine Podcast. Today we travel into the wine hills of the Chianti Classico to visit one of Italy's historic wineries, Badia Acoltibuono, in the company of my guest this morning, Roberto Stucchi Prinetti, who is a general manager and winemaker on his family wine estate. Buongiorno, Roberto. How are you today? Is it a beautiful day in Tuscany? Hello, Mark. Very nice to be here. Thank you for the invitation. It's a little bit foggy. I'm at the moment in Florence, but uh, in Firenze, uh, but uh, not sunny, but nice. Not too cold, finally. Not too cold. So we're beginning to come out of winter then. Roberto, I have very fond memories of visiting the Badia Coltibono. Can you please describe for our listeners your wonderful property and the surrounding countryside so, so that they can gain a visual impression, an image of, of where your estate is located? Yes, Mark. So we are, uh, and yes, as you said, a very historical uh, winery property. We are on the hills of Chianti, Monti del Chianti, on the southeastern edge of the Monte del Chianti, so overlooking the Arno Valley. We're at about 630 meters of altitude, right in the forest, uh, close to the top of the Monte del Chianti. And as I said, we overlook, uh, we look north into the Arno Valley, so the valley of the river that goes to Florence, facing the Apennini. Um, so we're in the higher part of Chianti. But the state is divided in two parts, so our vineyards are actually a little bit uh, far, farther away, also in Gaiole, but uh, at lower altitude in the zone of Monti, at the southern edge of, edge of Gaiole. So the state is really two different parts. Where the monastery, what was the monastery is, we have the agriturismo, the aging cellar, the restaurant, and it's up high altitude. And then we have the winery and vineyards in Monti, at the opposite edge of Gaiole. So you see two very different parts of Chianti. And Chianti is very diverse, so uh, we, we embrace two sides of it. Yes, of course. Roberto, the Badia has a long and illustrious history going back many centuries. Can you tell us something of the history of your estate? Yes, uh, it's an amazing place. This was a, a monastery founded by a, a San Giovanni Gualberto, protector of the foresters, in 1051. 
or around those years anyways. He had founded a monastery on the Apennini called Vallombrosa, which gives a name to the order, the Vallombrosian order. So they were a spin-off of the Benedictines, let's say a reform order of the Benedictine order. They were looking for the uh, you know, more pure uh, monastic expressions. They were very involved in agriculture and forestry, which is why the founder, who is now San Giovanni Gualberto, is the protector of foresters. So they had a very important role in the medieval agricultural revolution, which I always like to remember, remind, it's when, uh, for the first time in this part of the world, the, the, the not only the monks, but a coherent system of uh, what we would call sustainable agriculture was developed. They started terracing, they started using cover crop, rotation of cultures. They created what defined the Tuscan landscape for centuries up till recently. And so the monks were there up till uh, 1810. That's when uh, Tuscany, of course, Italy wasn't unified yet, and Tuscany was annexed by Napoleon, and the monastery was secularized. So uh, from that point on, it was a private estate. It had different owners, and our family acquired it in 1846. This was our Giuntini ancestors. And it's been in the families with lots of ups and downs uh, since, so for seven generations now. Large estate, uh, still uh, the monastery was converted to first to a villa and then to a agriturismo, farm holidays. So we have restaurant and rooms and cooking courses. And that way we also try to maintain and preserve uh, this beautiful place, the building, but also the forest around it and the vineyards, olive groves and everything else. Yes, it is a truly, truly beautiful place. It's very interesting what you're saying about sustainable agriculture really dating back to the origins of of the of the monastery i guess that would have been the mixed promiscuous culture as opposed to monoculture that we find today under the mezzedria is that what uh, you're talking about when Tuscany, the landscape itself, was very different from what we see today? Right, exactly. So Mezzadria was also a, so a kind of a social revolution because the farm workers were basically serfs, slaves before that. And the monks devised this system where the family who farmed the land had control of half of the crop. So half the crop went to the owners of the land and half to the people that worked it. And so this was uh, a very... Uh, socially advanced system for the time and a big revolution and that paired with uh, more uh, better techniques of farming which the monks introduced also because they had access to the roman manuscript so they reconnected the classic culture and built on that and so yes the poderi was the farm unit with uh, always a parcels of forest that was farm forest and was used to to graze the animals uh, part of the year but also, you know, yeah, mixed mix crop. Very similar to what, interestingly, the most, uh, what I would call postmodern agriculture, like permaculture, is looks very similar to what a promiscuo Toscano was uh, and has been for centuries. So tree crops alternated with ground crops, integrated with animals that would graze and, uh, you know, keep clean and fertilize. Very productive system. The land produced a lot. Interesting, we think of modern industrial agriculture as high yielding, but uh, if you look at how much food was produced in a small parcel of land with that system, it, you know, we, it had something to say. Obviously, a very, very uh, a system that kind of uh, uh, 
didn't hold on to, didn't uh, survive modernity, uh, but now some parts of it are being rediscovered, I think. Oh, that's really, really interesting. And actually, the productivity goes to the actual name of the estate, Badia, the Abbey of the Good Harvest, Coltibuono. So it's been a productive farm for all of these centuries. Yes, absolutely. The, at the peak, it had uh, about 40 poderi, 40 farm units within the property. And we still own a good part of the land, but uh, most of the farmhouses were sold in the early 20th century or mid 20th century when times were very difficult. Uh, so some of them are uh, nowadays independent estates uh, nearby, like Riecino or Capanelle, that of course have their own brand and name. But, but yeah, so a lot of land, a lot of, you know, Chianti had a much higher population than it has now. In the 50s and 60s, a lot of people left, uh, but uh, these farm units were, you know, hosted uh, very abundant uh, families, large families, and uh, uh, we had about twice as much population in Chianti before Second World War than we have now. And this is after 30 years when there's been uh, people moving back in the area. At the lowest point, uh, we were down to one quarter of the population in the 70s, so big changes in Chianti. That's really interesting to hear how social changes happened as that that ancient agricultural system was phased out. Now, Badia Coltibono also has this long history of hospitality. The monks used to offer hospitality to travelers, to pilgrims. Are you actually located on the Francigena, the important medieval pilgrims route that went from northern Europe to Rome? No, we're not. So the Francigena is lower, it's more west of our, us, uh, in the lower area, closer to Siena, let's say. We, the Monte del Chianti were actually a secondary route. It was quite important. It's named uh, Camino Michaelico and, uh, for Michael, uh, the archangel. And uh, that's why there were a series of monasteries on this path. Basically, the road that, that uh, from Florence uh, uh, goes south, it's actually a beautiful walking path. You know, if you have a good stamina in seven, eight hours, you can walk to Coltibono from Florence, all on the top of the Monte del Chianti. And along, you'll, you'll pass near Badia Passignano, which is still a monastery, Vallombrosian, and then the remnants of uh, Monte Scalari, and then uh, Badiaccia Montemuro. So there was a string of monasteries. Uh, as I've heard, and I haven't found a very strong historical evidence, apparently this was a route that was used quite a bit in the summer. In the winter, there was too much snow, and the, the Francigena was more viable. But in the summer, it was actually healthier up on the hills because some of the lower areas had you know, swamps and so malaria also. And so sometimes this was quite uh, walked during the summer months. Now, Roberto, go, going back to the uh, sustainability of, the, of this ancient system, but also of the farm today, you, were, you yourself were one of the pioneers in the Chianti Classico in conversion to organic viticulture. Can you tell us a little bit about this and what challenges it posed you and indeed the state of organic viticulture in the Chianti Classico today? Yes, uh, you could say that we were early adopters of organic practices. I, uh, I grew up in Milano, studied agriculture, 
Uh, while I was studying agriculture, this was in the late 70s, I did a course in biodynamic agriculture. I had no idea what I was getting into, but the oldest biodynamic farm is near Milano in Italy. And so I never really um, embraced the whole spiritual side of biodynamic, but it taught me a lot about uh, uh, complexity and how to you know, learn about the health of a, of a farming system, which starts, of course, with soil, biodiversity and everything. And I studied in California for a few years in Davis, where also this was 82, 85. And I learned a lot from local farmers that were beginning to embrace organics. So not so much winemakers. Wine uh, joined uh, the organic movement a lot later. But so when I came and I started that Badia in 85, uh, I immediately uh, went in that direction. The big challenge back then, there was little information, little support from, uh, you know, academia or science. Uh, the agricultural science was still very much, what I say, inorganic. You know, there was no tension on microorganisms in the soil or biodiversity. So it was more like treated like an industrial system where you put inputs and you get things out. Now, of course, it has evolved. So the, the, the challenge was to break ground with... Uh, not much uh, support around. Uh, now the situation has changed a lot. There's a lot of people that are doing organic. Chianti Classico today is over 50% certified organic with a lot of, you know, biodynamic and other uh, advanced forms of organic. So permaculture and whatnot. So it's it's developing really fast, which is nice. Now there is a community. I'm also president of the Biodistretto, which is specifically an association of organic producers. So it's nice to be working together on this and it's much less lonely. And it's, of course, a lot more. You can do a lot more when you can work on it together. And I think that's the recent uh, development. Well, that's very encouraging to hear and uh, an extraordinary high proportion, 50 percent. I'm um, surprised to hear that. Uh, is is uh, Chianti Classico an area that lends itself too organic in terms of not having the risk of some of the maladies that would happen in moister or more varied climatic areas? Well, uh, up to a point, yes. Uh, but uh, I also think that uh, uh, organic works better either way, even when you have difficult conditions. Now, if you're trying to grow grapes in an area that's really not well suited, uh, you're always going to go, it's only going to be uphill whether you use organic or conventional techniques, you still will have a hard time. So one of the uh, concepts behind agroecology, which is the basis of organic and biodynamic and everything else, is also to grow things where it makes sense to grow them. So, you know, and in that sense, yes, Chianti is very well suited for for vines. But I, I would argue that even if you are growing a crop where it's not well suited, you're still better off using organic practices because healthy soil means the plants are going to be healthier and easier to protect. Of course. Well, you certainly are getting successful results because you make some beautiful wines, which I've enjoyed. Roberto, can we turn to hospitality at Badia Coltibono? You mentioned that you have an agriturismo. Visitors can come and stay with you. What do you offer? Please tell us about what the visitor will find. Well, first of all, you get to stay if you stay there in uh, rooms and apartments that are inside uh, what was the monastery. The monastery has still a medieval part, but most of it was expanded in the Renaissance and then in the 1700s. For one 
part added in early 1900s. So there's many different uh, epochs uh, in the building. In the last 40 years, we've uh, you know added uh, bathrooms and made it uh, uh, more comfortable, obviously, but you still have this very unique uh, flavor of staying there. Uh, because you, st- you are within a medieval Renaissance monastery that has been readapted into a villa in the 1800s and then uh, converted to Agriturismo more recently. And so uh, whether you rent a room or you rent an apartment with your family, it's just a beautiful place to stay. We obviously don't have a pool and a really nice uh, uh, Italian garden. There's many reasons why people come uh, to stay with us. Uh, we have a lot. Recently, we have a lot of bikers and hikers, for example, just because we're in the middle of this network of trails uh, where you can hike or mountain bike, and there's a lot of also road biking. But then we do. Uh, we have a restaurant. We do cooking courses, which we've had for a long time. It used to be our mother who taught them, starting in the early '80s, and so the program has been continued and. Uh, it's quite, uh, it's a fun program. You can come for a day course or three days and learn about local cuisine and hands-on. And then we do a lot of tastings, wine tastings, of course. So we have groups or, that come over for wine tastings. And then the restaurant is open to both guests and people from outside. So a variety of, uh, of things and people come to just hang and, you know, uh, have a nice time at the pool and enjoy also the beauty of the place and uh, it's nice and cool because it's up at a fairly high altitude in the summer or people will base there and we're only an hour from Florence and Siena and Arezzo so you can stay there and still do the you know the cities the museums and whatever and just come back there in the evening so a variety of, of but the flavor of it is quite unique just because you are sleeping in in history really yeah sleeping in history i love the sound of that and of course the abbey of the good harvest the badia coltibono has it is famous for its food the food in your restaurant and your cookery courses uh, as you say made famous by your mother lorenza de medici who wrote some beautiful books i've I've seen her beautiful books. They inspired me when I was beginning some of my work and travel in Tuscany. And it's a real wonderful uh, legacy that she's created that is carrying on. I know many of the ingredients served in your restaurant, used in the kitchen, are actually grown on your estate or sourced from, from local farms. Tell us about some of the wonderful things to eat uh, in your restaurant, some of the wonderful produce and products of your area. Yeah, we do. We do have a garden, obviously, at Badia, so we do some of our own, especially herbs and some of the, you know, salads and vegetables, but uh, both for the restaurants and for the cooking courses. But then we also try and and have developed a good network of local growers. Now, that's one of the issues in Chianti, that is, uh, but it's coming back, let's say, the production of food in the area, which is nice. Uh, up till a while ago, there wasn't all that much because of the changes in the last 30, 40 years. But now there's a comeback. And in fact, with the Bidistretto, we're pushing to promote the idea of uh, new crops. So we have some very nice uh, producers of uh, local cheeses, both goat and sheep, for example. We have uh, uh, local grains, uh, vegetables. We we have uh, growers that, uh, that provide uh, 
you know, both uh, greens and uh, beans and other, you know, classic legumes that are a big part of Tuscan cuisine. Some of the meats are local. So, but it's still building up. I think the future for Chianti is going to be producing a lot more than just wine and olive oil. Are there younger people returning to the land then? Yeah, yeah, yeah. At least trying. It's not easy. We have an issue, for example, with uh, too many wild boars and deers. That's a real problem these days and uh, hard to manage. But yes, there is certainly a lot of uh, uh, people coming back. And again, not just for, you know, for decades, Chianti developed pretty much around wine. And that was good because, uh, you know, it uh, brought it back from a very difficult period. But now more and more other Food crops are being grown again for local consumption, and that's really nice. It's very important, I think, for the future to give more uh, and for the health of agriculture. There's a lot of space to do that. If you can uh, uh, manage somehow the wild animals, that's the real difficult part. Uh, Can you just maybe say one or two of the iconic classic dishes that that a visitor to your restaurant should definitely try, uh, just to give a flavor of this wonderful Tuscan cuisine is celebrated in the restaurant? Uh, well, the menu changes all the time, so I'm not sure that I would quote the things that are uh, necessarily on the current menu when we reopen. And right now we're actually closed for the winter. We reopen in March. But there's a, we do things with some of the local wild meats, for example, the, both the deer and the boar, and that have become... Uh, classics now even the recent because there wasn't that much of these animals 50 years ago but they have become a classic now uh, also uh, well of course things like the classic bisteca is is also uh, a, always a, a nice uh, nice thing i would say one of the things that is uh, uh, less maybe explored of Tuscan cuisine is the non-meat part. So a lot of nice bean dishes. Uh, we don't do so much the classics. Occasionally we do like the ribollita, the, you know, the Tuscan bread soups with beans and things like that. But but beans as a sides in many ways. Uh, also, we, we also propose food that's not necessarily totally local, for example, risottos, but part of our family has roots in Lombardia. And so risotti with local ingredients, for example, are also a classic at the restaurant. So, you know, lots to choose from. But the menu is always in evolution. Wonderful. And always foods that go well with your beautiful range of wines. Well, the beautiful thing of Chianti and Sangiovese made classically, which means not over-extracted, but with but it maintains its elegance, uh, like in our Chianti Classico, for example, it's, uh, it's very food-friendly. So it's not overly tannic, it's not overly rich, it has this freshness, elegance, and acidity, and nice uh, crispness that makes it go with a variety of food. I mean, traditionally, you'd have a lighter Chianti even on seafood, for example. That's how uh, flexible it is with uh, with food. Obviously, as you get into the Riserve or the IGTs, like the Sangiovese, then it's, you know, the bigger wines, and then they like the, you know, the red meat uh, pairing or the cheese, uh, and they need something rich. And one of the things that we've I've always maintained in uh, in the state was the traditional genetic mix of Sangiovese, so we use a massal selection, very wide diversity of clones, which means that the style is very classic, but also that it maintains more elegance even in the very warm climate. Now the challenge is very much with uh, the 
the climate that's pushed so much the maturation. We are harvesting more than a month earlier than we used to with much richer. We used to harvest late October, even early November, and alcohol levels were barely 13% in the best years. Now, usually by early October, we're at 14% alcohol. So, you know, it's earlier and earlier. And so that has also changed a lot how you have to handle the, the wines. And in that sense, uh, having the all the clonal mix helps to maintain the freshness. There's more genetic diversity in the Sangiovese and that definitely helps. And we also like to work with the other local varieties, uh, complementary like Canaiolo, Colorino, Ciliagiolo, the nice spices in the blend uh, that was traditional and unique to Chianti. So Sangiovese not alone, but always blended with other varietals. And we like to still maintain that. Yes. Well, Roberto, you've given us a wonderful overview of a very special place, Ibadia, I know that you described how travelers, pilgrims traveled along this spine of the Monte dei Chianti and would stop down at the Badia centuries past. And today's travelers, people who may be listening to us today, anyone who wishes to immerse completely in the Chianti Jana, learning about foods, wine, and life, can discover all of this and more with you. It's been a real pleasure talking with you, Roberto. I'm personally looking forward to returning to Badia Acoltibuono sometime in the future, and I hope our listeners will too. Thank you very much for being my guest today. Thank you, Mark. It's been a pleasure. And yes, I hope you do come and visit soon. And, uh, and of course, extend this invitation to anybody who's listening. And uh, hopefully we'll have a freer time of traveling from now on soon. So... Yes, let's hope we do. Grazie, Roberto, uh, e a presto. Grazie. We hope you enjoyed today's episode of Wine, Food and Travel with me, Mark Millen, on Italian Wine Podcast. Please remember to like, share and subscribe right here or wherever you get your pods. Likewise, you can visit us at italianwinepodcast.com. Until next time, chin chin. I'm Joy Livingston, and I am the producer of the Italian Wine Podcast. Thank you for listening. We are the only wine podcast that has been doing a daily show since the pandemic began. This is a labor of love, and we are committed to bringing you free content every day. Of course, this takes time and effort, not to mention the cost of equipment, production, and editing. We would be grateful for your donations, suggestions, requests, and ideas. For more information on how to get in touch, go to italianwinepodcast.com.